You know, it, on the November 19th discussion group, if people want to discuss this sermon, we can as well. We had the morning service, we had a good discussion, and I think the, the scripture brings up a lot in people. Because, you know, if a preacher were told they could only choose one or two sections out of the Bible on which to preach their entire lives, you get one set of scriptures, this would be on my list. Because you could come back to this text your entire life, every single week, and never, ever run out of material. Now, the Beatitudes are at the beginning of what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are one of the first public events that Jesus engages in with his disciples. And where these sayings are found in the book of Matthew are ve is very important. Now, there are clues in the Bible that you tell you when you, you need to pay attention. Something big is going to happen. Signs of wholeness and holiness are found in the numbers 7 and 40 and 12. Think about all the times you hear those in both of the Testaments. And if a mountain or hill is mentioned, it means stop, pay attention. Something is about to happen. It means that you're going to be directed to spiritual transformation and transcendence of the everyday. Therefore, since this sermon is delivered on a mountaintop, we're no, we know that we're supposed to stop and pay attention. Each of the Gospels paint the person of Jesus in a particular hue. In Luke, Jesus is the savior of the marginalized, the outcast, works with the people that are ignored by polite society. In Mark, Jesus' ministry begins with casting out demons. Mark is kind of the crabby Jesus. He's the ultimate crosser of all boundaries. In John, Jesus begins his ministry, and I must say, at his mother's in, is insistence um, by providing wine at a wedding. Now, John's Jesus is the source of endless imagination and abundant grace. And in Matthew, Jesus is a teacher of a radical new way of living in the world. It's actually a very old way, but... It always comes in as new generation after generation. And this was a Jesus who called people to join him in this new world order. The Beatitudes are identifiers of discipleship, characteristics of the faithful, attributes of believers, their truth tellings. They name our blessings, but they also name what is at stake in those blessings. This is why in the book of Matthew, this sermon has to be preached right here, right now to the disciples, not later. They've just been called and they have to know how Jesus sees them and what they are to do in order to be able to hear the rest of what Jesus has to say about who he needs them to be. 
Now, there's an edginess to these blessings that should never be blunted. The way of the world today is really not so different than the way of the world 2,000 years ago. And Jesus was inviting his disciples into a worldview that would turn the world order then and now on its head. Now, a word about kingdom language. The kingdom of God is imagery that Jesus uses as shorthand to convey a full-blown reordering of reality. Today, that imagery is burdened by the crimes of empire, and it is for some a stumbling block to faith. So some use reign, some use household, or even kingdom, but none of these phrases are without burden of personal experiences that make one phrase or another problematic for one person or another. So let's just all agree for right now that what this points to is a way of life focused on living in holy communion with God, with God, and then therefore with one another. These sayings should never ever be understood as a way to keep people submissive or oppressed. These are not pie-in-the-sky promises of what will take place in the sweet by-and-by. This is an invitation into living a new way, a way where mercy, peacemaking, and comfort from sorrow reign. Jesus is inviting his disciples into a righteous community. Now remember, righteousness comes right out of the prophet Amos, and living in a righteous manner means living in a way that enables honest and equitable relationships between people regardless of social class or condition. And it's all, the foundation of all of it is based on the worship of God not ourselves. Those who mourn will be comforted when others live justly. Those who are meek will, be, will never be left with nothing when we all lived justly. And unfortunately, there will be those who will be persecuted, who will be outcast for doing the right thing for standing up, for speaking truth to power. Today is All Saints Day. It's a day of remembrance or commemoration of all saints, those who have died, whether they have been officially named or canonized by the church or not. And this celebration began early in the seventh century. All Saints Day gives us the opportunity to hold up those we love and those we have admired, maybe even from afar, but who have gone before us in death. It's a day we can acknowledge our losses and celebrate the lives of the loves that we've lost. After 20 years of working with the dying and the bereaved, I'm convinced that we are shaped as much if not more, by what and whom we have lost than by what we have. Mourning is something we all experience. 
mourning is complicated. Mourning isn't something that, contrary to pop psychology, has closure. Mourning is something that adds a new facet to the gem of our lives, something that we will revisit and know in different ways throughout our lives. Mourning or grief is not an emotion unto itself. It's a collection of emotions that may happen simultaneously, which make us exhausted and confused and may spring up unbidden, therefore surprising us. This chaotic mishmash of emotions often leaves us feeling vulnerable and even isolated. Grief can include sadness, relief, fear, despair, regret, shame, loneliness, and can result in anger. You know, it's difficult to mourn in our society. We may, if we're lucky, be given two to five days bereavement leave for work, paid, maybe. And in that time, we're to plan a funeral, have the funeral, get everything tidied up, get back to work, and be finished grieving. I remember it was in 1993, and I was the director of spiritual care and bereavement for Hospice Austin, and this um, woman who was a director of personnel called me from a, a a big company here in town, and she <laughs> she wanted to talk to me about one of her employees whose um, mother had died, and it was unexpected, and it was her first loss, and she was telling me all these things, and I was like, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm, I was so impressed that she was wanting some help to deal with this, and she was telling me all about what she was doing, and I said, okay, you know, we had this long talk. I said, what would you like me to do? Because we, we, went, we would go to uh, places of work and, and help people, and she said, well, I want you to tell me how to tell her to get over it and get on. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I can't do that. Um, I said, but here are all the things I can do. And I gave her this wonderful list of things. And she said, I'll get back with you. And I am still waiting for her. So if any of you were that woman, I'm here. <laughs> You know, it's difficult to mourn. We live in a society obsessed with being happy, with having our personal needs met. We even sometimes confuse blessedness with happiness. No, I believe, but I'm not happy. What's wrong? But as Dr. Amy Auden of the St. Paul School of Theology points out, the Greek word here, marikios, has a semantic range for blessed that includes fortunate, happy, privileged. Happiness and blessedness may overlap, but they are not identical. Jesus begins his teaching not with promises of happiness, but with promises of blessedness, even and perhaps most in the hard human experiences of mourning, of being meek, of peacemaking, of persecution, 
and poverty of spirit. Jesus' form of blessedness only makes sense, though, in light of the kingdom of God, that imposition of a whole new way of being in a whole new world. Most of us have been taught to work hard, that power, that strength, acquisition of stuff and achievement will lead us to lives of fulfillment, of happiness. But this is not the world that Jesus paints with these sayings of blessedness. These blessings give us hints into the heart of God. These are descriptions of this kingdom, this kingdom, this realm, this world of God that God values. Living into the blessedness put forth in, in these sayings is giving up on our own arrogance, our own ambitions, and leaning into the foolishness of God. As Father Mike Marsh wrote years ago in a blog, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise and what is meek to shame the strong. The Beatitudes are nothing less than the way of the cross. In the trauma and setbacks of life, we discover that we cannot do life by ourselves. As we admit our need of God, we find purity of heart. The arrogance of self-sufficiency gives way to meekness. We realize that all that we are and have is from God, and we begin to know ourselves as poor in spirit. Our own misfortunes awaken and connect us to the pain of the world. Because we cannot help but mourn all of us. We think less about ourselves and become merciful to others. We have nowhere to go, and so we turn our gaze back to God. And the longer we gaze at God, the more we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we become peacemakers, reconciling ourselves to God and to our neighbor. The Beatitudes are not about how we relate to one another in this world, in this new world that keeps trying to, are, are about how we relate to one another in this new world that keeps trying to slip into the lives that we try to control. So we come today remembering those we love, those who have died, those we may not have known but who have influenced us, and there, in the vulnerability of mourning, we will find comfort. Those who mourn, those who grieve, those experiencing that messy part of life where we are lonely, afraid, ashamed, relieved, depressed, exhausted, and even angry, those people will be comforted. Mind you, Jesus never said those who follow him will not mourn. He never said we'd escape the vicissitudes of life. Jesus calls us to a different way of life, not an escape from life. As Will Willimon reminds us in his book, The Gospel for the Person Who Has Everything, 
The notion that Christ is among us mainly to meet our self-defined needs, that Jesus is a somewhat primitive therapeutic technique for solving our problems and soothing our complaints is a hard heresy for us to defeat. Christ calls us not to make our lives a bit less miserable, but rather to make our lives count as part of his mission in behalf of his beloved in his world. So what are we doing? What are we doing with our lives at this time, in this place, with the bodies and the resources we have? What are we doing while we mourn? How do we mourn? What are we doing as a community to live just lives so that righteousness reigns? Are we living in a way that transforms the social norms that exclude? Are we striving to see the kingdom of heaven made manifest right here, right now, like we've been told it is already at hand? Are we living in ways that make our lives count as part of Christ's mission in behalf of his beloved in his world? Are we leaning into our loss? Are we feeding our fears? Are we stoking the fires of envy and strife? Even as members of the beloved community, we sometimes find ourselves lost, lonely, feeling out of step with the rest of the world and wondering what all of this really means. And that is where we turn to our religion. The word is derived from Latin, which means bind us, bind together. We must return to that which binds us together, not which separates us. I contend that these edgy blessings guide us to live, as the Reverend Dr. King Jr. said, in a God-intoxicated way, so that we are not arch defenders of the status quo, rather agents of comfort, of transformation, so that we all might live in a peace promised long ago, but which remains real today. These blessings of all things so strange to our ears are not a way to get through life. They are the path of life. Amen.